Today, we're going to take you to one of the most beautiful places we have ever been. You walk into a beautiful space filled with white and rainbow-colored light bounces off every surface that you see. And of course, there's a crypt that the architect now resides in. What lies beneath? La Sagrada Familia. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and taphophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. Today, we're going to the Sagrada Familia, meaning the sacred family. It's one of the most unique and impressive cathedrals in the world. A modern representation of Gothic architecture with intense symbolism and Art Nouveau design. It is truly unlike any other building on earth. Today, we have Randy with us as my co-host. Hello. Randy and I took a trip here in 2019, Mm -hmm. and I have to say that it was just one of those moments in your life that you will never forget. Yeah, I agree. It was one of my favorite things that we did that whole trip, and one of my Mm -hmm. favorite memories in general with you and with traveling, and it was just so, so cool. And I even got you, you know, kind of a little tour for Christmas before we went, and it was all just kind of special thing we did. So I'm excited to talk about it. Me too. So this was one of the places that we wanted to bring you to. And of course, having a crypt underneath just really sealed the deal. And (laughs) in the crypt resides the architect of this amazing building. And his name is Anthony Gaudi. One of the most unbelievable things about this cathedral is that it has been under construction for over 140 years. So a long time, it's still incomplete. So, um, you know, anyone that's ever been there, ever seen it, has seen it under construction. Yeah. On March 19th, 1882 is when construction began on the Sagrada Familia under architect Francisco de Paula del Villar. And you might say, wait, I thought you just said the architect was Antony Gaudi. Well, Gaudi took over as architect when Villar resigned the next year and really completely revolutionized the project with his unique design style and Mm non-traditional architecture. So in all reality, it's his. It's his baby. It is. Um, It's one of, you know, his legacies and probably his most well-known legacy. Mm -hmm. So we really attribute it to him. Most notably, his design style was kind of non-traditional and mixed gothic and art nouveau techniques. And some of these designs were notedly like non-linear, lack of right angles. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently there's not one single true right angle in the entire building. Mm. I'll kind of get into that. And a strong inspiration from nature. All themes not typically seen in traditional Mm -hmm. Gothic architecture. Yet still the design holds true to some traditional themes like the cross-shaped nave and towering spires. So it's really just kind of a special blend that Gaudi made his own. It's so different. And 
If you've ever seen a picture of it and you just are not putting two and two together, it looks like it's kind of melting. It looks like <laughs> it's almost made of wax and it's kind of, everything kind of is flows, flows and mm -hmm. like it's just made out of wax and it's just hot yes, in the or sun. clay, like kind yeah. of. And lots of textures, lots of unique shapes. Um, and we'll kind of get into some of the more unique yeah. um, design choices, but really just kind of neat. It's like nowhere you've ever been and nothing you have ever seen. And that's coming from us who have been to a lot of places. A lot of cathedrals even, like yeah. churches, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Gaudi devoted his life to the project, but obviously didn't live to see it to completion. When asked about the lengthy construction times, Gaudi replied, my client is not in a hurry, <laughs> meaning God, <laughs> and he would still be around for the construction and, in fact, had waited hundreds of years for other famous cathedrals to be built. Mm -hmm. um, construction relied on private donations and has creeped along among various delays, including the Spanish Civil War and, most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. So, almost ebbed and flowed. It, was, it hasn't been a very consistent construction, especially because it's dependent on donations. In 1936, revolutionaries broke in and destroyed many of the original plans, as well as the original model, setting the project back over a decade while teams tried to piece back the pieces to the master model. Oh, that's terrible. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it, that really set it back and it's kind of led to some, I want to say controversy, but at least discussion of was this really what Gaudi designed or is this mm. what we've just been able to kind of surmount that he, you know, based on the fractured pieces and evidence that we have. Oh, wow. Yeah. So kind of crazy. And, you know, it was kind of heavily delayed through the Spanish Civil War until it intermittently picked back up construction in the 1950s and has been pretty consistent ever since. Perhaps one of the most ambitious pieces of modern architecture, this project, like we said, is still currently underway with a projection for completion somewhere between 2026 and 2030, marking more than 100 years after Gaudi's death. And I know that they wanted to have it completed at 2026 because that was yes. the 100-year anniversary of his death. But with COVID. the pandemic, a lot of things got... Delayed, and this is yep. one of those things. So that's a bummer. But um, Randy and I, we when we were there, we said, okay. So the next goal is that we have to come back here when, when it's, it's completed. Complete. Yep. Whenever that is, we're gonna go and we'll see go it. to Barcelona. All done, which will be incredible. So that's just you know kind of a little bit background um, history wise on the construction. Uh, when we visited in 2019. The first thing that stuck out to me about the exterior was just the sheer size. It's um, enormous. It's so I mean, tall. It's unbelievable. And it's not even as tall as it's going to be. Mm -hmm. The largest spire is, I think, one of the last things that's going to be completed. Um, and when it is completed, it will actually be the tallest church building in the world, measuring in at 566 feet or 172 and a half meters. It's just so it's, it's very just wild. crazy. Yeah, it is just shorter than like the tallest hill in Barcelona, 
And Gaudi did this on purpose as he didn't want to surpass God's creations. So it was still kind of like a little Aww. nod to nature and to... Didn't He's not trying to... to build the Tower of Babel or anything. <laughs> right. He's just like... He just, you know, he, he didn't want to surpass it. So I thought that was really cute. Something that Gaudi really seemed to incorporate was that deep symbolism in all of his design and that connection with nature as a way to honor God. Every choice that was made in the design direction is with an intention and a meaning. Mm-hmm. So we'll kind of go into a little bit of that, about some of the symbols that he's included, and um, along the way, describe this building to you guys, both exterior and interior. Gaudi's original design calls for a total of 18 spires, representing an ascending order of height, the 12 apostles, the Virgin Mary, the four evangelists, and tallest of all, Jesus Christ. Nine spires have been built as of 2021, and there are also three separate facades, each representing a theme within Christ's life. The Nativity Facade, the Passion Facade, and the Glory Facade. The Nativity Facade is what we came to first, as this, as you can guess, represents the birth of Christ. This was the first facade to be completed, and it was completed in 1930 and is still our favorite of the three. Yes. Gaudi had the most personal input on this facade, as this was while he was alive. uh, Yeah, overseeing the, the project himself. And it is rich in his naturalist style. The walls and columns are adorned with all manner of Animals, plants, trees, sculpted pillars that look like the texture of coral. The facade faces the rising sun to the northeast, a symbol for the birth of Christ. And it's divided into three porticos, each of which represents a theological virtue, hope, faith, and charity. The tree of life rises above the door of Jesus in the portico of charity. Four steeples complete the facade and are each dedicated to a saint. Matthias, Barnabas, Jude the Apostle, and Simon the Zealot. I loved this facade. As we already said, it was our favorite. But I remember picking out cool animals that I would never expect to see on a church. Um, (laughs) I'm very much a naturalist. Some of you guys kind of know this about me already, but I love... Um, being out in nature and picking up all the cool rocks and minerals and feathers and, you know, things like that. And this just <laughs> yeah. very much spoke to me. But, you know, some of the ones I picked out were like chameleons, turtles, pelicans, you know, these animals right. that you wouldn't expect to necessarily expect be in a holy a, building. A dove or, or a something. lamb, you know, <laughs> yeah, something like that. But this was just like God's creations, his animals. And it's all over this facade. It really is beautiful and makes you think of God's creations while you're there. Right. And I think that's what he was aiming for was having us remember that this is a place of God. That is, this is his church, his building. Absolutely. And many of them do have a symbol attached mm-hmm. as well. So, for example, the chameleons represent change. And to contrast, the turtles or tortoises represent a steadfast and a set moment in time. So it was kind of like the birth of Christ was both changed everything, but also was, 
you know, this steadfast and immortal thing. So that was kind of cool. Gaudi intended this to be the welcoming entrance as well, kind of the entrance to set the stylistic tone for the rest of the cathedral. And like we said, this was the only facade that was nearly complete when he died, so he had the most influence over in general. The Passion Facade is on the other side and depicts the crucifixion of Christ. In complete contrast to the Nativity Facade, the Passion Facade depicts harsh, straight lines. And that's a perfect way just to describe it. It just seems harsh and cut and... Very angular. Angular, good. And it's real barren. It's not full of all the little bits and pieces of flowers and vines and fruit, you know, and, fruit mm-hmm. yes, all of those things that you see on the other side. It has those lines that are depicting bones, the harshity and brutality of Christ's sacrifice. Sculpture of Christ on the crucifix hangs high above the doors. It is really jarring in comparison with the nativity facade and Gaudi wanted to have the nativity facade completed first as to not startle and deter visitors with this harsh facade. Right, like if he had that as the first one, he was afraid nobody would even support the project anymore. Like, oh, this is a scary, really like barren, not beautiful. And honestly, I didn't really like it myself. I felt like it didn't look like his style on the other side of the building. And maybe that's because it wasn't completely his style. He wasn't there saying, no, 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 I want this like this. Or or maybe it's exactly what he wanted. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, many argue that this facade wasn't true to Gaudi's vision. The choices to be barren and more angular and stuff were, but the artistic style, Mm -hmm. not so much. It was very kind of modern. um, Yes. And very almost like impressionistic where it wasn't Mm -hmm. really a true depiction of people or anything so yeah you know it looks very different and almost a little bit out of place but I would say it does portray that message of harshness and even sorrow and it does definitely kind of achieved that nevertheless it is still full of symbolism facing Mm -hmm. the setting sun indicative and symbolic of the death of Christ so we had the rising sun with the Mm -hmm. birth side and the setting sun with his death The passion facade is supported by six large inclined columns designed to resemble sequoia trunks. And above there is a pyramidal pediment made up of 18 bone-shaped columns, which each culminate into a large cross with a crown of thorns. And then, just like the other side, there are four steeples dedicated to an apostle, James, Thomas, Philip, and Bartholomew. Finally, we have the glory facade, depicting death, judgment, and eternal glory. This facade will be the largest, which is hard to imagine because (laughs) the others are so huge. (laughs) Over the top. And that construction began in 2002. So we didn't get to experience this facade, and the plans for it were demolished with the destruction of... Gaudi's model in 1936. So all we know is that it will depict a variety of angels, death, demons, purgatory, heaven and hell, and will eventually be the main facade opening into the central nave. So that is going to be a whole different experience entering from that end and seeing that. So I can't wait to see how 
how that it all, all turns comes up. together. Yeah, absolutely. So then kind of switching to our experience and kind of the interior, once we got a little closer, the thing that stood out to me was the statuary and style of the nativity, which we talked about. But then walking into the church itself was a completely otherworldly experience. Mm-hmm. Um, if any of you enjoy visiting Gothic cathedrals, typically they're pretty dark and some, and we so, love us I mean, a good kind of gloomy doth, but we're Gothic happy. cathedral. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, dark stone lit by candles or soft lighting, columns and archways, dark corridors, that kind of thing, which is and that's total kind vibe. That's what I expected. <laughs> total vibe. Total vibe. And from the outside, we're all for it. We were like totally expecting that and we had also visited the Cathedral of Barcelona, which is one of the most Mm. classic examples of gothic cathedral architecture in the world so you know we had just kind of had that in our minds and then went here but walking into Sagrada Familia is a completely different experience you walk in and it's a bright open room and everything is white marble and there are these large like almost kind of skinny tall columns that stretch and branch just drawing your eyes impossibly high like it doesn't feel like you're indoors to vaulted ceilings I don't even know how high like you said impossibly high and they remind you of tree trunks well and he designed it to be yeah to look like trees and then like when you look up it's like you're looking at a treetop canopy it's so beautiful and there's all these windows that kind of let of different sizes that let light through and all the columns are different. Pools of rainbow light are cast about and are so, so vivid with the white background. So mm-hmm. tons of stained glass of the most vivid stained glass color I've seen ever. And as we stood there, we were there for probably about three hours. And as we were standing, the light would change. So as the sun went from the east to the west, we were kind of noon and afterwards, that light kept changing. And so you would stand and just look at one section of the wall or the ceiling or these beautiful columns, and the light would switch from red, orange, to yellow, to green. And we were just bathed. Literally, we have pictures of us that we'll share. And we're just (laughs) rose-colored. If you love color. Yes. If you love prisms and rainbows and just pure color, that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. Just light bouncing off every surface and reflecting. It was just amazing. And we just kept saying, this is amazing. This is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. We'd just turn and go, oh, look over here. Look over here. Yeah, it was truly like, yeah, I couldn't believe that this was just a building and it was truly more of an experience and it was, it was just beautiful. And when I kind of went into researching some for this episode, I think part of what makes that experience I mean, really all that makes that experience is all of these design choices that Mm -hmm. are so intentional, but you don't think about them when you're there because it's just all kind of part of it, you know, but um, so rounded. It's not angular. It's that canopy is is rounded and and it almost seems like you could be like a little tiny person that's looking up 
underneath flowers or right like a little ant <laughs> yeah that's just looking up and there's just rainbows of color and light and shapes and the shapes are all soft and beautiful and just make you think you're in the most beautiful place of nature that you've ever been mm-hmm. and so part of how that was achieved is essentially none of the interior surfaces are flat the design mm-hmm. consists in large part of abstract shapes which combines smooth curves, jagged points. None of the columns are exactly the same texture, shape, or circumference. So again, mm-hmm. gives you that feeling of trees. Right, and um, nature isn't all exact. It isn't no, it's the not same. symmetrical and perfect. Every single flower is different. And then even the branches, so as it branched off, there's different number of branches towards the top, and they actually hold an architectural advantage of distributing the load of this giant building more diversely. So it was like the genius of it was combining the beauty and the experience with the function, right? Mm -hmm. Even details such as the iron railings for balconies and stairways are full of curves, ovals, irregular shapes. And then one of my favorites was a very famous stairway that's there that when you look down the very center, it creates like a Fibonacci sequence, which Fibonacci sequences are found in nature, like the Nautilus shell um, is a Fibonacci sequence. If any of you have read Dan Brown's book, Origin, there is a lot of detail about this building, and, you know, Mm -hmm. of course it's fiction, but it um, brought an extra layer of appreciation for me. Yeah, (laughs) me too. We're like, ooh, there's the staircase. Yes. (laughs) I had to go see it, and it just, oh, it's just amazingly gorgeous. Uh, You weren't allowed to walk up it because it doesn't have a railing on the inner side of it. open, so it's, it's like, pretty dangerous. Like, it's very aesthetically pleasing, but... So um, Yeah, it would be a pretty sketchy staircase to go up. There are two of the spires that you can actually go up into, and this is one of the things that Randy gave me for my Christmas present that year, because we were already planning our trip, and she gave us a tour of going into one of these towers, and it's just the perfect way to catch the most beautiful views of Barcelona and of the sea. And so we had to stand in a line and give our papers. And, and then they took us up a part way in an elevator. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you went out and kind of across. There's a little bridge kind of between where you came out of the elevator and then the spire, which was a little scary, sort of. <laughs> it was so high. It was, and you're so I high up there. Super scared of heights. And I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to do what I can do here. But actually, I felt okay about it. And you step out into like, I don't even know how to explain it, like a little balcony kind of. Mm -hmm. You could step out, and I don't even know what that was, what it was on the facade of, but, you know, on that balcony, what that was, the shape of, but it was really cool. So you kind of step out on that, which felt kind of scary. And then you're just looking. Then you climb up hundreds of feet. And it's just the most amazing view that you could have. I do remember one part, you're actually behind the tree of life uh, that oh, we mentioned yeah. earlier. And you, I have pictures looking out over Barcelona and you can see part of the tree and doves that are in the tree. So there was several different vantage points mm-hmm. that you could look out. Super. It was really crazy, amazing. Really cool. And I then, definitely recommend it. Yeah, me too. 
it's worth doing. And then you walk down a whole bunch of spiral staircases to mm-hmm. get down. So it's just really interesting. And that that part felt really old. It did. You know, there was just some of the some of the first parts that had been completed. Then there's an underground level located beneath the apse, and it's covered by a large vault in which at the point where the largest arches meet, there's an outstanding sculpture of the Annunciation of Tamari. It also has a central altar with an altarpiece by the sculptor, Joseph Limona. There are 12 chapels in the Sagrada Familia crypt. Four of the chapels are dedicated to the Virgin of El Carmen. One of these is the site of Gaudi's tomb, and it's to the left of the altar there in the crypt. The other chapels are the Chapel of Christ, the Virgin of Monsterat, and Christ on the Cross, which is the site of the tomb of Joseph Maria Bocabella, who was responsible for the idea of building La Sagrada Familia. Then the floor of the crypt is bordered by a Roman mosaic with images of wheat and foliage, luscious vines that encircle the perimeter and the columns. The crypt is the oldest part of the Sagrada Familia Basilica and was already under construction when Gaudi took over the commission to build the Sagrada Familia. Because the crypt was already being built before Gaudi took it over, it was built in a neo-Renaissance style, which was popular at the time. But it was still decorated in the amazing nature-inspired style that would be the theme of the whole building, so it still, still looks like it all them. goes. Yeah. And, of course, this was Gaudi's most famous project where he would later rest in peace below in the crypt. Now, the Sagrada Familia crypt is not generally open to the public. It is open to the public during mass and prayer services, which means that the crypt is not open as a tourist attraction. And so we were able to look down into the crypt. Yeah, there's like windows kind of on the main nave that you can look down and see it. But that was as much as we got to see. Yeah, but weren't allowed down. And even now they ask that we respect the sanctity of the crypt. And so if you attend services there, please do not take photos or video. Now, a little bit about Gaudi himself. Antony Gaudi was born on June 25, 1852, in provincial Catalonia on the Mediterranean coast of Spain. As a child in primary school, he did well in geometry and arithmetic and received a traditional religious education in the humanities. He suffered from a recurrent and often persistent arthritis since he was six years old. His diagnosis is uncertain, but juvenile idiopathic arthritis is most likely. He coped successfully with his rheumatic illness throughout his life. It is thought that his arthritis may have influenced him to develop two of his major skills, the power of observation observation and analysis of nature. Which totally fits based on his design and style that Mm -hmm. we've talked about already. As Gaudi's health was delicate in his childhood, he had to spend long periods of time resting at the summer house in Ruidoms, 
There, he spent many hours out in nature, studying and storing up in his mind its secrets, which he thought of as his teacher, and felt it was the crowning achievement of the creator. He was also the son of boilermakers. I believe they were coppersmiths. And he began learning the trade in his father's workshop in 1860. The young Gaudi acquired a special skill for working with space and volume as he helped his father and grandfather in the family workshop. His talent for designing spaces and transforming materials grew until he eventually became a complete genius for three-dimensional creation. He showed an early interest in architecture, and in 1870, he moved to Barcelona to study at the Provincial School of Architecture, then the political and intellectual center of Catalonia, as well as Spain's most modern city. He worked various jobs to help put himself through school, and he was an inconsistent student, but showed some evidence of brilliance that opened doors for him, allowing him to collaborate with some of his professors. He did not graduate until eight years later, so a little, it took him a little time a little bit. to get through school. And uh, when he completed his studies at the School of Architecture in 1878, the director, Elias Rogent, declared, I do not know if we have awarded this degree to a madman or to a genius. Only time will tell. <laughs> That's just perfect. I love it. <laughs> because I'm sure there are still people today that look at the Sagrada Familia and go, what, what is this? Is that? <laughs> yeah. This is wild. And he must have been eccentric, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it sounded like it. Like he's Yes, just, he was an eccentric. This guy is kind of kooky. He's out there. But you never know what he might be able to do. Yeah. The young architect's ideas were not like anything else that had been done up to that time, and his projects were definitely noticed. Upon graduation, Gaudi began working on some smaller projects, initially in the Victorian style. But he soon developed his own style, composing his works with forms, textures, and complex geometric shapes. He had a way of animating the surfaces with patterned brick or stone, bright ceramic tiles, and floral or reptilian metalwork. These styles help give the surfaces an appearance of being like a natural object from nature. Yes. And if you've seen the salamander in Park Way, for instance, it is a representation of Gaudi's work. He was totally dedicated to architecture, which for him was a combination of many arts. During his early period at the Paris World's Fair of 1878, Gaudi displayed a showcase he had produced, which impressed one patron enough to lead to Gaudi's work on the Way Estate and Way Palace, among others. He soon became one of the most sought-after architects and began taking on larger commissions. Antony Gaudi left behind many other one-of-a-kind works in Barcelona, one of which we went to see. We went to visit one of his other houses. We saw La Pergera, or Casa Mila. Okay. I just remember that everything was very curvy. Had yes. almost waves of curves along the edges and the balconies. The and windows was, even. Yes. Everything was very wavy and curvy. It was super interesting. During this time, masterpieces followed one after another. The Bellsguard Tower, Parkway, the restoration of Majorca Cathedral, the Church of Way State, Casa... Botlo, La Pradrera, or Casa Mila. Gaudi's method was based on trial and error, so models were very important to him, even taking precedence over floor plans. 
Which was why this was such a huge problem when all of his models were destroyed. Destroyed for Sagrada Familia, absolutely. Mm -hmm. He would normally set up his workshop on site and experiment with scale models, testing the shapes and structures that would later be used in his constructions. And he did the same, as we discussed, um, where the architects who have carried on the works continue to use this method, now with help from new technology. Yeah, they probably just punch it into their computer and mm-hmm. they can see it. But can't you see him making these little tiny parapets and spires, yes, the and little trees and, and everything, and then see it like made just ginormous, must have been just so amazing. Right. After his little models. An interesting thing about Antony Gaudi is that as he became more famous and his work became more magnificent, he began to withdraw from society and other people. Gaudi, in his youth, was outgoing and extroverted, and he attended the theater and concerts and social gatherings. But he went from being kind of quite the dandy to becoming more introverted and withdrawn, removing himself from social life and even neglecting his personal appearance. Like we said, he was eccentric, he ate frugal meals, and began to devote himself more fervently to his religious and mystical sentiments. I also wonder if just the fame was a little too much for him. Like, he liked being social, but he didn't necessarily want to be the subject of people talking and the you know what I mean like it almost seemed like it was like it was a lot I also think that he was really focused and he didn't want any of the unneeded distractions distractions. oh sure and so he kind of set all of that aside and his entire focus was just placed on this crowning piece he was an admired architect and as such Gaudi played an important part in the renaissance an artistic revival of the arts and crafts combined with a political revival in the form of fervent anti-Castilian Catalanism. Both movements tried to reinvigorate the way of life in Catalonia that had long been suppressed by the Castilian-dominated and Madrid-centered government in Spain. After 1902, Gaudi's designs began to defy conventional stylistic classifications, (laughs) and he created a type of structure known as equilibrated. That is, it could stand on its own without internal bracing, external buttressing, etc. The primary functional elements of this system were columns that tilted to employ diagonal thrusts and lightweight tile vaults. Notably, Gaudi used his equilibrated system to construct two Barcelona apartment buildings, the Casa Batolo and the Casa Mila, which is the one we we were talking about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whose floors were structured like clusters of tile lily pads. Both projects are considered to be characteristic of Gaudi's style. Gaudi also was just a great craftsperson. He collaborated with other artists of his time, and he designed all kinds of pieces of art. Works from forged iron, furniture, ceramics, sculptures, mosaics, and stained glass windows. His forms were always, of course, organic and curved and into the building. Now, he reminds me, we've talked about this before with certain individuals on the podcast, like I'm thinking of Ben Franklin when we talked about him, but he's just one of those kind of individuals that was just like a a master of many things, Mm -hmm. you know, 
and really wanted to do his absolute best and just learn all he could about mm-hmm. his various crafts and really quite incredible. Because even if all the Sagrada Familia had going for it was the amazing stained glass, it would be like the most amazing right. thing. I mean, just right. the glass work is just incredible. Yeah, he was just so talented and his ideas were just so innovative and different. And then, of course, his crowning achievement and the religious symbol of the Renaissance in Barcelona was the Church of the Holy Family, La Sagrada Familia, a project that was to occupy Gaudi through his entire career. He was commissioned to build this church as early as 1883 when he was just 31 years old. That's basically my age. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. embarking on a project like that. <laughs> That's a lot. And as he worked on it, he became increasingly pious. As mom mentioned about him becoming kind of reclusive after 1910, he abandoned virtually all other work and even secluded himself on its site and lived in the workshop. Gaudi devoted more than 40 years of his life to his work on the temple of the Sagrada Familia. Gaudi died on the 10th of June, 1926, after being knocked down by a trolley while making his way, as he did every evening, to the Sagrada Familia for Vespers. He died by getting hit by a trolley? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Yeah. I thought it was going to be because he was kind of sickly in his youth, you know? Right. His... Just goes to show you, you can have all kinds of problems, but you can die in a completely different way. After being struck, he lost consciousness and no one realized who he was. Nobody suspected that this disheveled old man that wasn't carrying any ID was the famous architect. Oh my goodness. So he was taken to Santa Cruz Hospital where he later was recognized by the priest of the Sagrada Familia. But he did die of his injuries and he was just a couple weeks shy of his 74th birthday. That's so sad. I know. Got hit by a trolley. Oh my gosh. He was buried two days later in the crypt of the Sagrada Familia following a funeral attended by large crowds of people. It is said that most of the citizens of Barcelona came out to bid a final farewell to the most universal architect that the city had ever known. That's such a crazy juxtaposition, too. Like, nobody recognized him, and he was just kind of alone in the hospital. But then once everybody realized, oh, wait, like, he's actually should be beloved. Like, he is beloved for his work. It shows that he was kind of lonely, you know, or at least Mm -hmm. purposefully removed in a way. But, wow. After his death, work continued on the Sagrada Familia, and continues still to this day. Like we were saying, it's been in construction for 140 years and other cathedrals have taken longer. I mean, Notre Dame took almost 200 years or a little over 200 years to build. So in that context, it's actually moving along quite well. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a quick little project. And in 2010, the uncompleted church was consecrated as a basilica by Pope Benedict the 16th. So there are religious services performed there. And then in Gaudi's drawings and models for the Church of the Holy Family, Gaudi elevated the cathedral Gothic style beyond any recognition. <laughs> um, it is a complex and symbolic forest. I love that. Complex and symbolic forest. And he spent that last 12 years of his life just completely devoted to La Sagrada Familia. And it was his 
greatest vocation, serving God through architecture. After his tragic death in June of 1926, Gaudi's memory became diluted over years and he was not that celebrated until well into the 1950s when he began to attract attention at home and abroad. In 1969, 17 of his works were declared Artistic Historical Monuments of Cultural Interest by the Spanish Ministry of Culture. The Nativity Facade and the Crypt of the Basilica have been declared UNESCO World Heritage Sites, together with another six works by Antony Gaudi. It contains the tomb of the famous architect. Aw, well... It was so awesome, Randy. Thank you for being with me today and talking about this amazing place. I feel like as we add the pictures and everyone can see with their eyes all of these details, that it will all come together and they'll yes. be able to understand why we were so wowed by this place. Yeah, it's truly kind of hard to describe. You know, we can say that it's beautiful and you can kind of try and picture stained glass and stuff, but Mm -hmm. it truly is unlike anywhere else we've ever been. So it was a special one and a very special episode to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you. His originality, creativity, and ability to innovate have made Gaudi a universal figure in architecture. In fact, his work is known worldwide and his legacy, despite the passing of time, is more alive than ever. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.